Thanks, Dave. Thank you very much. Thanks to Dave and Ains for, for worship. Um, you realise, of course, there's actually three people up here leading worship, don't you? Yeah, yeah, Ainsy's little baby is a bit of a worshipper, we've discovered. We're not sure whether she's dancing or throwing her arms up in the air. But if you wonder why Ainsley sometimes misses a word or two, it has something to do with a little baby inside who wants to join in the worship. Apparently she likes our discussion points as well, so she should fit in pretty well to the uh, church scene when she comes along. So um, in our discussion point today, I want to talk about work. Because God loves work. In fact, work was God's idea. God says plenty about work. I love this picture. I don't know how clear it is on the small, on the small screens, but this photo is of a young fellow with a Bible open. It's obviously open somewhere in the Old Testament, and he's laughing. And I like to think he's laughing because he's finding good things in the Bible. And, and every time I open the Bible, I'm just amazed at the good things I find in it. I, I love reading the Bible. I've even been known to be late for work because I got carried away reading the Bible. And uh, there are so many answers to the questions in life. And one of the questions we have in life is, why do we have to work? And we're going to talk a little bit about that. But before we do, I want to ask a question. And again, this really focuses on the idea that we can read Scripture, we can recite Scripture, but not even think about it. So, you know, in the Lord's Prayer, we pray, give us today our daily bread. I mean, how many times have we prayed that? If you were in a denominational church like the Anglican Church where I was brought up, you would pray that in every church service. And we don't do that here necessarily, but in many churches, the Lord's Prayer is recited. Often if you go to funerals, it'll be the only prayer that most people there know because they'll recall it from their childhood. We've said it so many times. And uh, I actually did a discussion point on the Lord's Prayer earlier in the year. You might recall that. But I really think it's important that we don't just allow the words to trip off our tongues without actually considering what they might mean. So have you ever actually wondered about how our daily bread materialises? I've got two little images there, one of wheat growing in a field and another of your morning toast popping up out of your toaster. Can you just imagine what goes on to actually make that possible? For a start, the farmer has to till the soil to prepare it, to make it ready to receive the seed. And of course, someone has had to actually grow wheat previously to provide the seed. And in the soil, if you have the right temperature, the right moisture levels, the seed will germinate and providing that there's water and uh, warmth and various minerals in that soil, the wheat will grow and ultimately it will get to the point where it's harvested. Then it will be transported to a mill where it will be 
processed. There'll be flour made. Then somehow that flour has to get to a baker who has a recipe, who adds some other ingredients and uses electricity or perhaps gas to power ovens which bake the bread. And then it has to get from the bakery to the supermarket where you buy it, and you've got to get to the supermarket, mind you, and get home again. Someone has to make the toaster, and I won't go into all the intricacies about that. But you see, it's no small task. And there have been people working, perhaps in many different countries of the world, to actually make it possible for you to have your daily bread. Sure, we can read in the Old Testament about the children of Israel as they come out of slavery in Egypt, they get manna from heaven, but that's the only time God has ever, ever simply rained down the bread from heaven. His normal, normal practice is to create work and through work we receive our daily bread. Have you ever wondered about your iPhone? How did that come to be? Think many people involved in making the iPhone possible. And some of us might have Samsung product, and that's okay. But um, we, we can so easily take it for granted, can't we, that we just go into a store we sign a contract and we get ourselves a smartphone. But in fact, there are many thousands of people who have been involved in making it possible for us to enjoy the benefits of our smartphone. And you see, it happens through work because people work. They engage their creative capacities, which have actually been placed in them by God in the first place, in work to produce products that actually enable human flourishing. And the heart of God is that all humans should flourish. So I want to place work in its context. So this, this is actually a, a two-part series. might even be a three-part series in the end because there, there are really three areas that I think we need to address. The first is the area... And that's what I'm focusing on today, that it's God's idea in the first place. And for those of us who don't enjoy our work, that might be a novel idea. The second thing that I want to touch on, which we'll do next week, is that work actually blesses God, it blesses us, and it blesses other people. And the third area that we really need to address, why isn't work fun? What is it? about work in so many situations that isn't fun. Because for many people, their work isn't satisfying, it's not necessarily well remunerated, and many of us have experienced bullying in our workplace. So we need also to address the issue of, so what's wrong with work as well? So we'll probably actually run this for three weeks. So I want to start with the so-called creation mandate. Some theologians call it the cultural mandate. And uh, many of you know that I'm often taking us all the way back uh, to Genesis, and it's actually because I think it's very important. 
Genesis, it means the book of beginnings. And we need to get our beginning right if we're going to get our ending right. So the first thing to understand is that in creation, when God actually created human beings, the first thing he did was to bless them. And he blessed human beings by delegating royal authority and power to them. You see, when he gave us dominion, and I want to talk about this in more depth in a moment, he gave us a, an opportunity to engage our imageness in God in the context of work. So we have royal authority and power. When God said have dominion, when he said um, multiply and fill the earth, he was actually delegating some of his royal authority and power to us. The second thing is that in Genesis 2, uh, verses 15 and 18, we see that God holds us accountable to finish the work of the garden. You see, Genesis 2 records that um, God looked at what he'd created and he saw that he needed someone in the garden. So he placed Adam in the garden and he commanded Adam to tend and keep it. Now, in the Hebrew, that means actually to steward and develop the garden. In verse 18, God says it's not good for man to be alone. And so is recorded the creation of Eve to be a companion and a partner of Adam. Not to be his slave, by the way. God equally holds Adam and Eve, men and women, accountable for the work in the garden. And in Genesis 3, although we tend to focus on sin in Genesis 3, because that's where the, the sin of Adam and Eve is recorded, I think sometimes we miss the fact that when Adam and Eve hid from God, they hid from him after they sinned because they knew he was going to be walking in the garden in the cool of the evening because he just wanted to talk with them. Right? God is a relational God. And so he wants to talk with us. So I believe that in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, we're given that authority and power. Then in Genesis 2, 15 and 18 in particular, that's where God says, I'm going to hold you accountable for how you use the authority and power that I've given you. And then in Genesis 3, we see that it is the character of God not to leave us on our own to do it, but to be with us constantly and relationally as we work. That's why I often say to people, find God in your work. Find God in your work. So we're given power and authority. We're held accountable for it. But God doesn't leave us on our own to figure it all out. In a nutshell, my argument is that God ordains it. That is work. God ordains it. God sustains it. God inspires it. And God requires it. And I want to share with you some Verses today that bear this out. So first, God ordains work. I've talked a little bit about that blessing that God 
placed on Adam and Eve way back there in Genesis. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over all the earth. Now sometimes romantically we get the idea that this is all about having babies so that the earth is full of people. Well, yes, that's part of it. But there's a lot more to it than that because you see that, that overarching narrative of the Bible actually takes us from the garden in an underdeveloped earth all the way through to the city in the book of Revelation. So God was never intending for Adam and Eve to hang on to the garden. His intention was that the garden would actually expand to cover the whole of the earth, that the whole of the earth would be filled with people made in his image, and that the resources of the earth would be wisely stewarded so that we actually do develop from what you might call a primitive garden all the way through to a complex city. In other words, God's intention at the beginning of human history was not that we should stay where we were back then, but that we should develop all the way through to the end of human history as recorded in the Bible. That's amazing, isn't it? See, when you, when you have a look at what it actually means to subdue the earth and to have dominion over the earth, it, it's not meant to be about fighting against nature. It's actually meant to be all about nurturing all of the resources that God placed in the earth and using them to contribute to human flourishing. Now, I happen to think that my iPhone contributes to my flourishing. I can remember the reason why we bought mobile phones in the first place many, many years ago when our children were young teenagers. It was so if they were out somewhere and they needed us to pick them up early or they wanted to tell us they were going to be late or there was some kind of emergency, they could simply ring us. I mean, it was fabulous to be able to do that. Now, of course, we can keep in touch with people all over the world using a tiny phone. And as you saw in that little video, there is more computing power in a smartphone than there was in the Apollo rockets that actually put man on the moon in 1964, wasn't it? 69. What happened in 1964? I know I had a birthday. Oh, well, we won't worry about it. Anyway, so there's more computing power in that. I mean, that's almost incomprehensible or comprehensible. That could be both, right? It's difficult to imagine. But that technology has contributed so much, I believe, to human flourishing. And if you think, oh, well, that's just a first world issue, it's not. In uh, low-income countries, in Kenya, for example, there's an app available for mobile phones. It's called Mpisa, which means mobile, uh, Pisa, which is their currency. And, see, in Kenya, it might take you two days to walk to a bank. So let's say you wanted to do a transaction. Two days there, do your transaction. Two days back, that's four days out of your seven week, or, and you haven't done anything productive. With Mpisa, you can actually do a transaction on the spot. 
That's a contribution to human flourishing, is it not? I've got an article at home. Um, in, in India, peasant farmers out in the country used to often be ripped off by the local grain merchant because the local grain merchant would know what prices were in the major cities, but the peasant farmers wouldn't. They had no way of knowing. Well, when they got mobile phones... You know what? They could actually find out what the prices were in the major cities and so the local grain merchant could no longer rip them off. That's contributing to human flourishing. So th even things like this that we take for granted so much, they just cause me to look in wonder at our God who made us as creative human beings and enabled us to do the many marvellous things that we do. Now, of course, a mobile phone can also be used to set a bomb off. And they have been. So the technology can be used for evil as well. But that's not so much an issue with technology, nor is it an issue with the heart of God, as it is an issue with the fallenness of humankind, such that through sin, everything is marred, including our work and what we produce through <coughs> our work. Many people have argued that work was really the result of sin. But that's a misunderstanding of Genesis because when God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it, and when he put Eve in the garden to work with Adam, that all happened before that first sin is recorded. So work is something that was on the heart of God before Everything that he created was marred by the sin of Adam and Eve. So God ordains work. He also sustains it. In Deuteronomy 8.18 we read that it is God who gives our arm or our hand the power pardon me, to get wealth. Now the context in Deuteronomy chapter 8 is the law. And God is saying, sorry, the context in, in Deuteronomy 8 is the promise that God made to the patriarchs of Israel in relation to the promised land. Now, the promised land was truly a land of milk and honey. It was a land of enormous productive potential. It was a land of trade because Canaan, the promised land, the word actually means merchant or trade. It was a very wealthy area. So God's intention for Israel was that they'd move in, that they would take over this land of Canaan, they'd push out the people who were there because they were engaged in things like child sacrifice. So they were an abomination to God and God was going to give them this land and in this land he was going to bless them so that their storehouses would be overflowing with grain. And God said, the trouble is, you're going to be so blessed that you might forget that I am the one who made it all possible. And that's the context of verse 18. Don't forget that I am the one who gives you the power or the capacity to create wealth. You see, God makes it possible for us to work to produce goods and services that lead to wealth creation. I've just been involved in an exercise earlier in the year where we were looking at the role of business in creating wealth that can then be used to transform not just individuals 
but whole communities. And uh, there are four or five papers that have been published out of that work now, including the one I wrote, which was published about uh, three weeks ago, and it's biblical perspectives on the creation of wealth and transformation of individuals and communities. You can find that on the web if you want to read 20,000 words of what I've written. Or you can just come here and, and you can hear it here. Probably easier to come here because at least you get a coffee afterwards. But I, I think this, this idea that it's God who has given us the capacity to create wealth is a very important idea. You see, God, not only did he uh, ordain work, but he makes it possible for us to undertake work that is good work, which produces things that enable human flourishing. In Deuteronomy 28, we see another reference to work, and this isn't the only one. There are numerous other references similar to this. But in Deuteronomy 28, all good Pentecostals know is the, the list of blessings and curses. And uh, in Deuteronomy 28, God says to Israel, if you obey all my commands, then all these blessings will be yours. And then he said, well, if you don't, all these curses will fall upon you. God doesn't say, I will curse you. He says, all these curses will fall upon you. Now, this would be a, a topic for another discussion point, but as New Testament Christians, we actually access the blessings of Deuteronomy 28 by faith in the grace of God to supply because of what Jesus did at the cross. All right? So we access the blessings of Deuteronomy 28 not because we obey the law, but because we come under the grace of God. And it is by his grace that he provides. The Lord will command the blessing. Now this blessing actually, in, in this is an agricultural context here, this blessing, God, what God actually says is, I will open my treasures, the windows of heaven, and I will let it rain. Because you need the rain for the crops to grow. So the Lord is going to command that blessing in all to which you set your hand. What does that mean? That means work. The Lord will bless all the work of your hand. And that is repeated in the Psalms and you'll find it in Proverbs as well. So God sustains our work. He's the one who actually gives us the power to create wealth. He's the one who gives us the conditions under which we can work and produce a blessing. This perhaps is my favourite area, and that is that God actually inspires our work. I think I'll probably read the full passage here from Isaiah 28. I really love this because if, if ever you need any encouragement, as to whether or not God is interested in your work, you should read this. Now, the context, again, it's, it's a rural context because, of course, at the time that this was written, Israel was an agrarian society, so it wouldn't have been helpful to them for God to express his uh, desire to inspire our work except in an agricultural context. But, of course, we can use it in our current work context, whatever that happens to be. So let's have a look at Isaiah 28, starting in verse 23. 
This is God speaking through the prophet Isaiah. Give ear and hear my voice. Listen and hear my speech. Does the ploughman keep ploughing all day to sow? Does he keep turning his soil and breaking the clods? When he has levelled its surface, does he not sow the black cumin and scatter the cumin, place the wheat in rows, the barley in the appointed places, and the spelt in its place? For he, this is God, instructs him, the farmer, in right judgment. God teaches him. For the black cumin is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over the cumin, but the black cumin is beaten out with a stick and the cumin with a rod. Bread flour must be ground, therefore he does not thresh it forever, break it with his cartwheel or crush it with his horsemen. This also comes from the Lord of hosts, who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. How about that? That harks back, you see, to Genesis chapter 3, where God desires to walk in the garden in the cool of the evening and simply converse with Adam and Eve. God wants to give us counsel and guidance in our work. Not only that, he wants to teach us those things we need in order to be effective in our work. So God ordains it, God sustains it, and God inspires our work because he will always give us counsel and guidance. All we have to do is ask. Now here's the tough one. God requires it. God requires it. When uh, Israel were receiving the Ten Commandments, there was one commandment there which was pretty important. He said, six days you shall labour and do all your work. Of course, the seventh was set aside for the the Sabbath, the day of rest. But God's pattern was that we would work six days and then rest on the seventh day. Some people like to do it the other way around. They like to rest for six days and maybe work on the seventh day. But you see, there's something in the kingdom of God that says work is a good thing. And the reason it is a good thing is that we're actually made to work, we're fulfilled in work, and I will touch on that next week. But let's have a look at a couple of passages in the New Testament. 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 10 to 12, actually says, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. And that's more a commandment than it is simply a statement. And I'll tell you what, if you want to have a look in the New Testament passages about widows, I I wrote a blog on this and I I make a brief reference to uh, the widows of the New Testament. If you have a look at that and if you applied exactly the same principles to social welfare in Australia today, I reckon there'd be five people on social welfare, not the millions who are on social welfare today. Because you know why? God knows it's not good for us. Now, I'm not arguing against social welfare, and actually there'd be more than five people on it, but there's certainly, there'd be millions who are not. See, God understands that work is good for us. God does not like a social economic system that cannot deliver meaningful work to all those who are able to do it. And uh, that's what I want to touch on in a couple of weeks' time. The, the story about work isn't finished today because, as I mentioned, 
we actually have whole systems that are not providing adequately for people to have meaningful employment that brings them blessing. But in 1 Timothy 5.8, we read something which is even scarier. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Some renditions say worse than an infidel. Now, what's scary about that is that that seems to imply that there are eternal consequences for indolence or laziness. Because if not providing for your own household, it makes you worse than an unbeliever, then just maybe that means you're not going to heaven. Wow. That's a wow, all right. Now, if you have a look through the wisdom books, particularly in Proverbs, you'll see, of course, that, that often the, the lazy or the indolent are referred to, and they always are referred to in the context of poverty, or in some cases, slavery. Indolence leads to poverty and slavery. Now, God also hates poverty caused by oppression, and you'll see that many of the prophets, they railed against the oppression that was imposed on whole populations by the political and religious leaders of the day. Poverty is a curse. There's no doubt about that. In some cases, it's a curse brought upon oneself because one's just too lazy to work. But often, it's also a curse which is brought about because of oppression of whole societies. And we've seen that time and time and time again in human history. And as I mentioned, the prophets railed against that kind of oppression. In Jesus' time, there was a lot of oppression. There was oppression from the Romans and there was oppression from the Jewish religious leaders and that led to a lot of poverty. Being poor is not a sin. Being lazy is. A lot of people are poor, however, because they are oppressed. And I do need to address that, but I can't do it in the context of our discussion point today, it will have to wait for another couple of weeks. So, work. God ordains it, God sustains it, God inspires it, God requires it. Easy to remember, eh? Ordains, sustains, inspires, requires. I just want to share one final thought with you. And and this is about Christianity. We come under a lot of attack in our society today. Many of the militant atheists have even written books about us, claiming that Christianity and other religions for that matter have been bad for society. But actually, history shows that to be untrue. Christians have done some pretty bad things, there's no doubt about that. There are things in the history of Christianity that we ought indeed to be ashamed of. But on the whole, Christianity has brought freedom to the world. And one of the freedoms it has brought is actually to the world of work through the creation of goods and services that contribute to human flourishing. This is a quote from a book which is called The Victory of Reason. 
uh, written by a sociologist. He is a Christian sociologist. His name is Rodney Stark. And this is what he says. Had the followers of Jesus remained an obscure Jewish sect, most of you would not have learned to read and the rest of you would be reading from hand-copied scrolls. You certainly wouldn't be pulling up a document on your smartphone and reading it that way. Without a theology committed to reason, progress and moral equality, today the entire world will be about where non-European societies were in, say, 1800. A world with many astrologers and alchemists, but no scientists. A world of despots, lacking universities, banks, factories, eyeglasses, chimneys and pianos. A world where most infants do not live to the age of five and many women die in childbirth. Christianity, apart from anything else, is actually a religion of work. And through work, we have universities, banks, factories, products like eyeglasses, chimneys, they were pretty important, you know, because people used to die of smoke inhalation before we invented chimneys, and pianos, which contribute to human flourishing through the, the finer arts. That list is not intended to be exhaustive. But you see, the one thing that the Christian religion did was actually take the word of God and implement it. And although perhaps work is marred by sin, and work is not always good for all people, God's intention was that it be a good thing that it bless us because through work we would engage with God to develop the garden not only so that it would fill the whole earth but that it would be developed from the primitive garden that it was at the time of creation to the complex city that is talked about in the book of Revelation. So work is an entirely spiritual activity. So whatever your work is, whatever your work is, paid or unpaid, when you go to work tomorrow, when you're working as a student in school, when you're working in the nights like Neil does, or when you're working at home like Pamela does, when you're working in childcare like Ainsley does, when you're working in an education institution like I do, remember... Your work was ordained by God. He takes responsibility for sustaining it. He will inspire you in your work, but he also requires it 